Welcome to this podcast from the Centre for Perioperative Care entitled From Waiting List to Preparation List. My name is David Selwyn. I am the Director of the Centre for Perioperative Care and I'm delighted to be joined today by three guests. Jugdeep Desi, who is a consultant in geriatric medicine at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital, who's the Vice President of the British Geriatric Society and also Deputy Director at CPOC. Also Scarlett McNally, who is a consultant orthopaedic surgeon in Eastbourne, a council member for the Royal College of Surgeons of England and our other deputy director at CPOP. And finally, Lawrence Mudford, who is the patient representative for CPOP. So over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to be exploring how we can turn NHS waiting lists into preparation lists. We're going to cover why we need to do this, what this means in theory and practice for our patients and for healthcare professionals, what impact this will have, and what CPOC is currently doing to help make it happen. We'll then end with a brief overview of how listeners can get involved in our work. So to set the background, the NHS has just released new figures showing waiting lists have reached a record-breaking 5 million in England. And this represents nearly 9% of England's adult population. And around 400,000 people in England have been waiting over a year or 52 weeks for their treatment. And for context, before the pandemic, only 1,600 people were waiting longer than a year. This problem is not just confined to England. This is something that's facing all four nations. Waiting lists in Wales are also at record highs of over half a million people which is 17% of the Welsh population. In Scotland, whilst we have less exact figures, we do know that the total number of planned operations in Scotland in 2020 compared to 2019 was down by over one third. And in Northern Ireland today, there are almost 75,000 patients who have waited more than two years for a first appointment and less than 15% of all referrals are seen within nine weeks. And of course, this data doesn't even take into account the estimated millions of hidden patients not yet actually on a waiting list. Those patients who held off from seeking support during the pandemic. As the health secretary recently admitted, there is a significant unquantifiable hidden demand that we are now facing. So the background is stark. What can we do to understand the cause of this and what can CPOC do? So let me bring in Scarlett for her thoughts on why we've got such a large and increasing backlog. Scarlett. There are large numbers of operations done every year. It's about 10 million a year across the UK. And with the pandemic, um, resources had to be diverted into treating really sick people um, with COVID-19. and normal elective planned operations um, in some places just stopped. There was a, um, still work going on around cancer and urgent operations and patients who presented as an emergency, but the backlog just increased um, massively well um, dur during the pandemic. And furthermore, there were people who were not going to see their GP about a problem, for example. So that pent up demand you were talking about um, is now flooding back in uh, all those patients who've been suffering um, w without being able to get help. 
Thanks, Charlotte. Jyoti, your thoughts on the causes of the, the, the increased demand? Thanks, Dave. So I think kind of Scarlett's touched on a number of the causes which kind of relate to um, the, the diversion of our clinical resources to addressing the issues raised by the pandemic. Um, the concerns that patients rightly had at that time about seeking help um, and therefore didn't end up um, having the opportunity to attend primary care or secondary care for their appointments, um, but also the kinds of um, the cultural kind of issues that came along at the pandemic as well, that people were concerned about the NHS and therefore didn't want to burden the NHS. They were concerned that they may get COVID or that their loved ones may get COVID and therefore were worried about going out of their homes and all of the issues that lockdown um, caused at that time. So I think the, the causes have been kind of pretty much elucidated by, by Scarlett, but I think that the cultural side of things over the last year have also played a big part as well. And can I bring you both in? So so we recognise that the, the causes have been multifactorial relating to access, uncertainty, all of those aspects. Uh, and of course, the the actual physical estate, the, uh, many organisations, the actual operating theatres were taken over by ventilating uh, COVID patients in there uh, and anaesthetic staff were redeployed uh, to, to support uh, critical care patients. But um, what about the, uh, the impact that the the pandemic has had on the NHS staff who are now saying you've got to step up and uh, and, and tackle this backlog. So the, the impact um, on staff working in the NHS and in social care um, has been huge over this last 15 months and I think that's something that we should um, be really careful about in our language in that often when we talk about the NHS kind of I think lots of people think about doctors and nurses um, and don't always think about all of the allied health professionals who are involved, as well as all of our social care workers working really hard in the community, and particularly patients going in and out of people's homes and working in care homes as well. So across the board, we know that all of our staff working in the NHS and in social care have been impacted hugely by the pandemic partly because of the work that they do day to day, but of course the impact on their friends, families, their loved ones as well outside of work. And we do know that about 60 to 70% of our um, healthcare professionals describe themselves as being exhausted, demoralized, and finding it difficult really now to be able to pick up the baton again and continue with addressing the huge backlog that we have. And so it's going to be really important in this time when we're re entering into our recovery time, whilst at the same time making sure that we don't see another surge in, in COVID, that, um, that we support our staff um, and support them to be able to deliver the quality care that they all want to be delivering, whether, again, that's in the NHS or within social care. And Scarlett, just from a surgical point of view, what about the impact on our, our surgical colleagues who've been desperate to, to, to undertake these backlogs, uh, but have been in effect prevented by, be it by the PPE uh, requirements, be it by the, the lack of a state, be it by the, uh, the other demand going on? How, how are they feeling? Well, most surgeons are really keen to get back to um, do operations, help patients, um, and and get 
get going again. Um, but a lot of them are having to spend a lot of, of time trying to sort out those kind of procedural practical issues uh, that you've mentioned, such as the estate and the staffing and the um, uh, re analyzing patients on the waiting list to see kind of who's ready if anyone's deteriorated on the waiting list, that kind of thing. So it, it's a lot of kind of churn um, compared with what we used to have, which was a kind of an efficient running system that everyone knew what they were doing. And now you've got staff who've been redeployed. Um, and the biggest impact actually has been on training that there are um, people in those years of training that are trying to get those specialist surgical skills that have just missed out on 18 months of training. So as we build back into it, we need to push um, surgical trainees to the forefront to get what they need so that we've got good surgeons in the future. So many surgeons kind of feel bombarded on all levels trying to sort out where patients should be, trying to, being told they have to operate in different operating lists, they've got different teams, and then everything becomes less efficient. I want to bring in uh, Lawrence just to touch on the patient view of the, these backlogs. So uh, 5 million people on a, on a waiting list in Northern Ireland, if you need a knee replacement called cataract surgery, you can wake up four years. So Lawrence, what's the view from our, our patients about this? There's quite a lot of data now starting to become available and certainly anecdotally as we talk to patients and I have that opportunity, um, we find that there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of people feeling they're just waiting uh, patiently but they're not quite sure what's going to actually happen next to them. I think another aspect is the health inequalities that have come out of the uh, lockdowns and the pandemic. Uh, there's a huge um, number of patients now in the population who realise that they are in what I would call sometimes a, from a deprived background. People who have become worst affected by the virus are generally those who have um, worse health outcomes before the pandemic, particularly people from ethnic minority communities, those living in poorer areas. So these people suddenly realise that they have a different level of health to everybody else. And I think that's been very worrying to a lot of people. I think COVID-19 has laid bare the weaknesses of a healthcare system. It's also laid bare the weaknesses of a social care system, where many, including uh, myself, I suppose, realise that there's been underfunding and um, it's time for a, a big change in healthcare. So I think people have a, a, a mix of um, understanding of how they fared through uh, lockdowns and through the pandemic and actually looking for reassurance. They're looking for positive messages, perhaps not the messages they see on the headlines of their daily newspapers most days of the week, Dave. And Judy, what these patients who are waiting on these lists, what what's been happening to them physiologically in 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 terms of their their health conditions? Because uh, while some of these patients presumably will be fairly static, awaiting a a, a relatively benign operation, if you like, albeit hugely important to them, there'll be others who will be actually presumably their health will be deteriorating. Have we got any data on that? 
We do, Dave. So can we know that um, a lot of our patients who undergo particularly our most complex surgery tend to be our older population. Um, they also tend to be patients who have other coexisting medical problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, lung disease, those kinds of issues. But they also tend to be people who are living with frailty um, and with other geriatric syndromes such as cognitive impairment. And we know that within those groups that one in four patients aged over 65 um, need help with day-to-day -day activities even prior to the pandemic. But since the pandemic's hit, and as Lawrence was describing, it's hit particularly those from socially deprived backgrounds, we're seeing that that particular population has really struggled. We know that about 4 million people haven't been able to eat healthily over this time. And of course, that's going to impact on their underlying medical issues, stop them from being able to get out and about properly, being physically active. And about one and a half million people can't really even manage to get up and down the stairs. So that's a pretty low level of day to day function. And that's all deteriorated over the last 15 months with people being in lockdown, not getting out and about, not exercising, not eating healthily and having their underlying medical problems such as diabetes again or lung disease not getting to see their GP about that and therefore not getting better from those sides of things whilst they're waiting for their operation. So we've got this really big issue with lots of people being on the waiting list and a, and a big proportion of that group having deteriorated as well over the last year. So we've got a lot of work to do at getting people as fit as we can for the surgery that they need um, and then making sure that we get the flow through the hospitals right to get the operations done in a timely fashion. Thank you. And I know I know that um, National Voices and similar organisations re released reports uh, describing the the impact that the patients have felt, be that the pain, the physiological distress, the the, the fears around their health deteriorating, uh, and of course uh, employment or uh, income uh, worries. Uh, but Lawrence, if I can turn to you to just maybe um, just uh, explore what is it that we should be telling our patients, uh, because very few organisations are really communicating, I don't think, effectively with the patients. I think that's a very good um, position to take, actually, because I think communication through the whole of healthcare needs to change quite dramatically. And if you look at different patients, every story is, of course, different. Uh, however, the majority of people now report substantial changes in their day-to-day -day routines and activities to their relationships, their connectiveness to others. We see lots of loneliness out there. And of course, to their interactions with health and care services, many people are reporting changes. Of course, some are positive. Some people have actually enjoyed lockdown. Um, others have found it a very negative experience, depending on the environment and the well-being that they had already. But for the majority, the, the waits, the delays, the cancellations have caused frustration particularly when people have not been given any information about well, what will happen next to them or what they should do if their circumstances change. 
Thank you. And clearly, tackling the backlog is a key government initiative, and CPOC wants to align with to try and uh, facilitate this. And I've heard that changing language can be really important uh, around this. And I've heard that CPOC is starting to use the terminology preparation list as opposed to waiting list. What, Scarlett, if I just turn to you, what does what does this mean, and and, and what's this all about? Um, well, this is recognising that. Uh, people can get ready for their operation and that makes a huge difference to their outcome. So there are several things that if people know they're due to have an operation, um, things that they can do so that they're in as good a condition medically and psychologically and physically as possible so the operation is much more likely to go well. And and those are things like eating well, um, doing some daily exercise, getting enough sleep, being psychologically prepared, uh, kind of medication review. Many of our patients are on multiple medications um, and that obviously needs, you know, some medical input. Um, so, but if people think of it as preparing for a marathon and every day they've got to do something to try and get a little bit better and a little bit more ready, and so they have everything prepared at home afterwards, then it's far more likely to go well. And there are some studies on particularly people preparing for cancer surgery, where there's just often just a few weeks to get ready, um, that you can reduce complications, some studies by 50%. With smoking cessation, you can reduce complications, again, by around 50%. That's a World Health Organization um, large study. So if people really focus on that, the event, they are far more likely to have a better outcome. That means a shorter stay in hospital, fewer complications, and just feeling better. That's a really nice illustration, Scarlett, using the marathon. I was thinking of definitions earlier on. So waiting for me is an action of staying where you are or delaying action until a particular time or event. It's a very passive thing, isn't it? Whereas preparation, looking at it from the position of running a marathon or a race, it's something that can be done to get ready for an event or undertaking. That's a really nice illustration. Well, Scarlett, I, I really love your statistics. Go on, give me some more of your statistics. How much exercise do I need to do a week? Um, well, the chief medical officers of the UK say 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise as the minimum for every adult. And that's about 21 minutes a day um, of moderate intensity exercise. That's something that gets you a bit out of breath. Um, and um, maybe a bit sweaty, but you, you're at, you know you're doing something. So it's not a gentle walk. It's a brisk walk or cycle or swim or gentle jog. And that that's, should be the minimum for everyone at every age. Now, some people, as Jagdeep was mentioning, many patients are quite frail. So for them, just doing something is better than nothing. And the gains are moving from nothing to something. Um, and in fact, the World Health Organization has said that as well as that time being active, you need to reduce sedentary time. And that that means less sitting, so less time in cars, less time on sofas, more time just getting up and, and doing stuff. And all every, every minute has value and improves people's health. That's a huge, hugely important message there. So, so doing something is better than doing nothing. Then the more you can do is doing is is clearly better. Getting up, moving about is better than sitting on the sofa. If you're able to 
walk briskly, that's better than walking normally. If you're able to run, that's better than walking briskly, all, all of those uh, aspects. And if you can do, get up to 21 minutes a day. Fantastic. And what, what's the impact of this sort of preparation on, on surgical outcome? Well, on the studies that have measured this, um, it reduces complications by around 50%. So some people have targeted exercise programs in advance, but actually kind of everybody needs to do something. The ones that have kind of breathing exercises have shown reduction in people admitted to intensive care post-operatively. But the other thing is the kind of the psychological boost you get from knowing you're doing something to prepare that is helping you. Um, and, and even just being able to get up out of a chair um, or get up out of bed means you're going to stay in hospital less long. Um, so it kind of it, it it's got a lot of kind of benefits that add on to each other. But the exercise, the effect on the body is there are kind of multiple effects on the body. It's not just uh, cardiopulmonary fitness, the heart and lung fitness. It's also um, the psychological empowerment. Um, it has exercise has an effect on metabolism and effect on inflammation. So you're less likely to get wound infections afterwards and that kind of thing. So there are quite a number of positive effects of exercise. And similarly, the nutrition, as Jodit mentioned earlier, um, you need vitamin C and protein to heal wounds. So we need to get people better understanding how to look after themselves at five a day. And I feel that the problem is people are so sort of passive. The model of the NHS, as, as Lawrence was saying, is you, you are waiting for somebody to do something to you or tell you something. And we need to get out the message that you're safe doing some normal good things like stopping smoking, eating five a day, and going for a walk every day as briskly as you can. Um, and that will really, really help 95% of the population. There's a few that need to be held back. You've got some particular issue that means they have to eat in a different way, for example. Or, But most people, including people with heart problems, need to get out and do some exercise and everybody needs to eat well and everybody needs to stop, stop smoking. So it's that knowing you, there are things you can do for yourselves and then every member of the team needs to help that person with those things. It's not somebody else's job. And we know as surgeons that if you delegate responsibility to the dietitian, you know that there's a queue for the dietitian just as long as the queue for the surgeon. So we need to get everybody doing the same messages and being positive. Um, it, these are positive things to do. It's not being a nanny state or, be, you know, this is, will make a huge individual difference for that person in front of you. Uh, I want to bring in Jugdeet in a second, but clearly that's a, a top priority. So, so changing the terminology, that mindset change from waiting lists towards preparation lists, uh, putting exercise at the heart of that, empowering our, our patients. In effect, I think what you're describing as uh, Scarlett was giving control back to, to, to our patients, almost giving the power back to our patients to say, actually, this is your disease process and you can influence this. So Jugdeet, if I was going to say to you, what, what about your top priority then uh, so we talked about uh, changing the terminology waiting list into preparation Scarlett's talked a lot about exercise I'm going to bring in Lawrence in a second about shared decision making maybe uh, what would be your top priority so Dave I think it's right that Scarlett's kind of focusing on um, patients kind of using the time to prepare for surgery um, but I think the onus is on us as health and social care professionals to support patients to be able to know what to do and I think kind of as professionals, we really need to be cognizant of the fact that we know that the health literacy of our population isn't as good as we would like it to be. 
And literacy isn't as good as we'd like it to be. And we do bombard patients with lots of written information, complex information, which makes it really difficult for patients to be able to navigate their way through a complex pathway like the perioperative pathway, where we have lots of healthcare professionals interfacing with the patient in the community with the GP, starting with the GP, preoperative assessment services, following through into exercise programs and dietetics. And you, know, you can see how people kind of get lost between the multitude of appointments and different people using slightly different terminology each time. So I think there is some an onus back on us as healthcare professionals to be consistent in the language that we use and in the messages that we give to our patients around what is important um, and what we think will help them to be able to get the outcome that they want from the surgery that they're having. So I think that kind of really starts with having appropriate preoperative assessment. And that should, of course, start in the community at the time of the referral from primary care into secondary care, making sure that we're getting all of the right information in. So then we can start to immediately help patients and support patients to be able to make the right decisions around diet and exercise and um, optimising their underlying health conditions whilst they're waiting for their operation. But as we were kind of discussing, a lot of our high-risk patients have multiple conditions, um, which often aren't all as good as they could be. So it's about how we assess across that those range of different issues, how we then provide a targeted optimization plan that doesn't mean referrals to a different anemia clinic and a diabetes clinic and an exercise program, but trying to pull that into one single um, point of contact kind of approach for the patient, but using the best evidence that we have for each of those interventions. And then it's about how we use that information, isn't it, about how we decide whether patients um, kind of once we go through the shared decision making process, which I'm sure Lawrence will talk more about, deciding whether surgery is the right thing for the patient. And if it is, then what's the best approach? Is it day surgery or is it an admission? We often hear of lots of cases where patients um, who might be living with diabetes or with dementia our admissions teams feel that it's nicer for those patients to come into hospital the night before, get settled in and then have their operation. Whereas actually we know that that group does best with day surgery, where they can come in on the morning of their operation and get back to their normal environment as quickly as possible. So it's a little bit about kind of how we decide about the right flow for patients. And it's also about having discussions in advance with patients and their families about what kinds of treatments they're willing to accept and what they're not willing to accept in the context of their um, values um, and what they kind of want in terms of quality of life. Um, so, you know, do patients want to have intensive, aggressive treatment after surgery or are there lines that they would draw about what they would and wouldn't want? So having those kinds of conversations are important to be able to plan the post-operative period. And I think finally, if we're really going to address post-operative complications, then we need to start to kind of be a little bit more um, honest in our conversations about the kinds of complications that we see most commonly in patients, which tend to be medical complications on surgical wards for so things like delirium, infections, poorly controlled diabetes, 
heart problems. And actually, we need to have a different approach at managing patients and supporting them on the wards after their surgery, pulling in the right people um, to be able to deliver that care so that we've got medicine or well, physicians, anaesthetists and surgeons working together, of course, with the allied health professionals, at making sure that we get people moving as quickly as possible, getting out of bed, eating better, and then getting home as quickly as possible or to the right place after the, the hospital admission. So I think we talk about kind of turning the waiting list into preparation lists. And I think that's preparation list for our patients, but it's also preparation list for us as professionals as well. And really rethinking the way in which we're delivering um, perioperative care. And to some degree, that's that's really what CPOC trying to do. So CPOC's got uh, uh, six key objectives in its current strategy, improving quality of care, empowering our patients and carers, supporting our workforce, uh, influencing and, and helping drive uh, uh, political policy, harnessing digital technology and leading on research and innovation. And I think you've described many aspects within within that uh, point of view there. So let me just, uh, I'll come back to, to you in a minute, Jodie, about guidelines, but let me just turn to, to uh, Lawrence. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion around uh, uh, shared decision making, and it's obviously a buzz term around in, in healthcare at the moment. What, what does shared decision making mean for, for, for patients and for professionals? It is a buzz term, and I think it's quite useful just to try and nail down what it is uh, at, a, at any opportunity. So it's using the expert part of both a clinician and a patient. So for a clinician, they're expert of understanding the healthcare system. They're expert at understanding the research, the risks and the difficulties that come from treatments and operations. But if you take that away from what the patient is expert at, and that, of course, is their own lives, their own personal circumstances, their goals, their aims, what is really important for them. If you don't have those two marrying together, then the decision will never really be a shared one between the two parties. And I'm very excited that one of the main work streams for CPOC is actually to collate and signpost resources to understand the shared decision-making process um, much better. And then, of course, how to embed it, how to implement it in all that healthcare actually should be. And in a way, what we're talking about is ownership ownership for patients in the decisions that they actually have. There's a lot of regret, I know, from many patients who have a procedure, an operation, and as they use hindsight to look back, they often say, well, I wished I'd been able to put my perspective over of what was really important for me in my quality of life, because although the operation was a success, actually, what I'm doing now isn't as good as I used to do or what I thought I was going to do. So that bringing together of two different experts, the patient and the clinician, becomes really important. And I suppose if you were to give it a title, it would be involving people in their own health and care. And you may recognise that from a report way back in 2017 by Alf Collins, who started this process of bringing everything together. I read it again recently, five years on, and I realised how we haven't as yet embedded the concepts of involving patients in their own health and care. And if we had done more of that, 
we wouldn't perhaps be playing catch up now with the COVID difficulties that we have. We might not be able, we might have dealt with some of the obesity problems that we have. Um, Scarlett was talking about the 150 minute exercises um, that we all should be doing. It's not a lot in a, in a, in a year, but we know that obesity is a major factor to deteriorating health conditions for those catching the virus. So the way that shared decision making can work very well, if I could just give you a worked example. I was talking to Tony Collier, a patient representative in Greater Manchester recently, part of the Greater Manchester Cancer Rehab Programme. There they have this great concept of showing the patient what they can actually do, involving the patient, um, making sure they understand just what it is the patient needs from their healthcare. They make sure that government sources and resources can come into the greater Manchester area. They have a, a great advocate in the mayor, Andy Burnham, who really wants to see a local initiative backed up by resources and money. But co-design, co-productivity, those buzzwords that are going around, putting patients right at the very start of a process. And they've got a great uh, process now where they have 12 weeks prehab and post-hab gym membership. Um, they have a great website that you can go on if you can't be on one of their trials. They have evidence that now shows how much improvement you can have from prehab. And the centre of that is giving some ownership back to the patient. And that's been a thread that's really been working through all of this. So yes, money is important. A willingness to change is important. But actually that cultural change or what I would call a reset at the moment in every aspect of healthcare for clinicians and patients, I just think is just one of those opportunities we have at this moment as we come out of the latest lockdown to really nail down what um, ownership of patients is. And central to that, I think, is clinicians listening more to patients. And for us uh, in organisations such as CPOC, to show how patients can be encouraged to be part of that process. Thank you, Lawrence, and possibly long overdue many of those those points. Um, so let me just bring in Scarlett for her thoughts on that. Thank you. The problem from, that I see as a surgeon for many years is you can get very fixated on what the surgery could do and the technical aspects of that of the operation. Um, and it actually takes a bit more effort to step back and see what the patient is going through. Um, and as Jagdeep said, a number of our patients have multiple other things going on in their lives and multiple other conditions. And if you're putting somebody so that they can't weight bear or they can't take themselves to the toilet or all those kind of things, for some of the elderly patients that we have, that kind of tips them over into a state that's much more dependent afterwards. And there are some things we should, you know, not be paternalistic and deny people, but this is where shared decision making is kind of the best of all worlds because you listen to what the patient really wants and you talk about what complications might occur. And you also talk about how the patient can do their bit to reduce the risks and, and how they can get their home better and their their life ready and get the family with them so that so that they're prepared and ready and they understand what it's going to be like. And, and for me, the key is not trying to do it all yourself, but sowing the seed. And then there are 
other if we can train the whole healthcare workforce to be giving the same clear messages um, and to help people and to help them choose uh, choose better um including choosing you know what exercise they're going to do how they can get their nutrition better um and and indeed with the operation it's the benefit risks alternatives and what if we do nothing and we're not kind of almost not honest enough about all of that because we don't stop and take the time to consider it but we need the patients then to come with that brand benefits risks alternative doing nothing we need them to tell us um to start the conversation thank you and and that simple acronym the brand acronym is so helpful in just helping to structure that um uh, that conversation okay i want to just move us on a bit so so we talked about if the aspects of shared decision making, the, the conversations with patients, but, but of course CPOC's also doing a, a series of uh, other, uh, providing a series of other resources and, and uh, guidelines is a key component of this as is sort of uh, redesigning the educational and curriculum uh, structure. So I just wanted Jugdeep if you wanted to touch on, on those two aspects. Um, yes, Dave. So, um, yes, in terms of the guidelines, I think um, it's always really interesting, isn't it, that as healthcare professionals, we're all constantly seeing guidelines coming out and kind of wondering why another group wants to write yet another guideline. Yes. Um, so um, I think you know the, the reason why um, CPOC thinks it's really important to be writing guidelines within perioperative um, care is because up till now, guidelines have been written very much for individual specialties. So we will have guidelines on the management of diabetes written for anaesthetists or for surgeons or for physicians. But of course, the issue here is that our patients um, on a perioperative pathway interface with all of those um, different specialties and different healthcare professional groups. And because of that, we think it's really important at CPOC um, that um, we have a guideline that is patient-centred and follows the patient from the start of their perioperative journey, from the contemplation of surgery, all the way through to their return to the community. So that then um, we can actually start to describe what organisations, hospitals, and then each professional group, as well as the teams that interface with the patient at each of those stages of the perioperative pathway, can and should be doing to ensure um, best possible care. So um, we've started by writing a guideline on um, perioperative care for patients living with diabetes, and that was published um, in the spring this year. We're now working on a guideline for people living with frailty. And then the third one this year will be for patients who have anemia. And it will follow the patient from that community aspect back out to the community. What we're also planning with the um, guidelines is to kind of ensure that they're not another set of guidelines that sit on everybody's shelf, um, is to start to look at how we can support um, organisations and professionals to be able to implement the strategy. Um, so providing the resources to units to be able to do that. 
And of course, that has to be underpinned by information which is um, directly relevant for patients, their carers um, as well. So making sure that we have patient representation on each of the guideline groups and that there are sections written directly for patients so that we have clear um, evidence-based information, as um, Scarlett was saying earlier, that really help patients to work out what they can be doing um, along their perioperative pathway. Um, so those are the guidelines which are currently in, in progress. And what's, I think, really exciting about it is that we also have the opportunity to be able to measure the impact of these kinds of guidelines um, by interfacing with lots of the national audits that already exist um, and supporting units with knowing how they can pull in information from those resources which are there to avoid additional data burden, but to give us some meaningful information to help us to then develop quality improvement programmes to continually improve the quality care that we provide. Thank you. And you highlighted in, in that some of the uh, key work that CPOC is doing about ensuring that there is seamless uh, transition for our patients across the various artificial barriers that we've got in terms of primary care, secondary care, and sort of involving uh, clinicians who are involved uh, right at the initial point contact uh, with, with the patient is, is, is really important to developing an end-to-end -end, uh, guideline. So that's really helpful. And, and of course, the other aspect I might just highlight is that CPOC is a four nations organisation. So it's about developing uh, relationships between primary care, secondary care uh, across all four nations of, of, of the UK. And again, this is a key work stream. So I'm going to just bring in uh, Scarlett because we were talking right at the start of, of those six pillars or those six uh, key initiatives that CPOC is doing. And one of the ones I uh, uh, highlighted was around influencing and influencing perhaps government or central NHS. And there's uh, CPOC's working on something called a, a perioperative care green paper CPOC. Um, and um, Scarlett, I just wondered, what does a green paper mean and what's all that about? Um well, a green paper is setting out really what ought to happen um, in order to achieve this across, as you say, all, all four nations. Um, but it's the practicalities and the politics um, of, of what needs to happen. So what we want at CPOC is people's ideas, because I think most people will get the concept. We want fit healthy patients um, for their own sake to um, get, have the best possible outcome from surgery. We want patients having shared decision making so that we've got the right patients being operated on. Um, and that also improves efficiency for the whole system. If we know um, if patients are only day cases, it, it makes the estates much easier and that kind of thing. It feels to me that most people get the concept of good perioperative care and the benefits it gives to patients individually and also to the whole system. Um, for example, if someone's a day case, it makes the estates easier, it makes it much more efficient running a list. So people get the concept of good perioperative care. But what we need are um, is uh, everyone to work out how it could work better. So CBOX actually asking for people's ideas. So any clinicians who've got case studies they can send us or um, ideas about what, what might work well, because some of it is getting the basic concept out to everybody, to patients, 
to healthcare workers and to politicians and decision makers? That's great, Scarlett. So, so if I just capture that, then so people can get involved in in helping us develop that green paper, that roadmap for for what we want to do with preventative care and change, and and change the the provision of care for our patients on the surgical pathway. And more details of that are on our website link, which is www cpot.org.uk. Uh, they can submit a, a case study. Again, there's uh, uh, information on how to do that um, on the, the excellent work that's happening at the local levels. Uh, people can, can get involved in guidelines uh, and uh, uh, suggest guidelines that they'd uh, want to help or co-develop with us. <clears throat> and then there's uh, obviously we put produce a, a monthly newsletter and people can uh, submit uh, information and articles for that. Uh, but the thing that's often asked um, when we're giving talks on, on this is how, how do we make this sort of vision of perioperative care truly happen? And, and, and I think all of us on this call would recognise that we haven't got a magic wand to suddenly just make it happen. Uh, but there's something about pushing this change from from the bottom, uh, the bottom up, and that's if you like the the example of practice and the uh, the case studies, and we can help drive that and publicise that and 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 take those examples and see if we can roll those out in a in a wider way. And then there's something about pulling the change from perhaps the top down, and that's the influencing that CPOC's trying to do at government and NHS and and various other organisations. And it's 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 not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. But I think the key bit for me in all of this, as you were describing. Lawrence and Scarlett is about putting a, a strong patient voice really at the centre of all of us and saying actually you know for too long we've fitted into a system that doesn't work well for us we want a proper system that uh, is aligned and has uh, 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 is, is fit for us and and gives us the care that we need. Do you think that's a, a fair reflection? Lawrence let me come to you. I too because I have had a, a very successful enjoyable career in healthcare and then I became ill and I became either a service user or a patient uh, depending on how your terminology actually works. The first of that service user means that I'm just part of a cog in a big system. Being a patient means I'm the centre I'm the I'm the, the central part of the process that is actually happening to me that allows me to make my decisions about my health going forward. So I love the uh, opportunity of using the term patient. And I think opportunity is the second phrase, really. Uh, opportunities here through CPOC are enormous. There was a wonderful quote by somebody during lockdown that said, we were thrown into building a plane while flying it. And I think that sums up a lot of the NHS changes that have taken place. What if we used a phrase like that now as we come out of lockdown and we actually start building a new NHS process based on prehab as well as rehab that most people understand while we're actually using the system? And Scarlett, any thoughts on on my summary? Um, an excellent summary, Dave. Thank you. Um, this, this really is an opportunity to do something different. Um, what I fear is that there will be money from government um, to try and sort out the waiting list, and it will be used to try and uh, put people through systems um, very, very quickly to um, as if each patient is almost a cog in a wheel, as, as um, 
Lawrence described. And what we need to do is to change the system. We need this opportunity to sort out the inefficiencies that were there before. A huge amount is about supporting the whole team and education for the whole team so that we can use the NHS facilities um, and get people to really feel at the heart of things and, and have an excellent outcome. And I think possibly the the one thing we haven't really touched on in detail in all of that discussion is um, we we brought it into the conversation right at the start about the the workforce really and and who's going to be uh, helping with all of this change and and uh, helping drive all of this forward so Jukti, I might just bring you in to give some thoughts on on the workforce that's going to be fit for a perioperative care uh, future um, so I think in terms of the workforce, we do have all of the component parts there already, um, but what we need to get much better at is making sure that our workforce um, works collaboratively, um, knows where they can add value um, and adds that value, but then hands the baton on to the, uh, the next team along the pathway. And that's a real kind of change, isn't it, culturally? Um, you know, we very much thought previously about patients as being surgical patients or medical patients. And actually, we do need to change that terminology too. Um, so these are patients who are on a perioperative pathway and they'll need different people along that pathway. And it's going to end up being a team sport, isn't it, really? Um, even more so than it has been in the past. And the team needs to be much wider than it has been in the past. You know, generally we've had surgeons and anaesthetists working together, but not so much with everybody else in the hospital. So um, we do need to address um, that kind of team approach within the workforce, but then we do need to rethink the skills, um, the knowledge and skills that is required. And we're doing that through some of the work at, at CPOC, um, looking at revising a curriculum around perioperative care, developing education and training resources, which are accessible and um, appropriate for different um, disciplines, specialties, grades, but making sure that we've got all of those resources aligned and easily accessible um, to people rather than being hidden away within different um, kind of sectors of the, the healthcare um, workforce. Um, so there's the, the work being done about the curriculum, education and training resources, and then about kind of team building to be able to um, develop a workforce that is fit to deliver perioperative care as a whole. Um, so lots of stuff kind of going on. And as you were saying earlier, Dave, kind of, you know, we're definitely looking for people who want to be supporting that work, sending in case studies where we've used the alternative workforce to deliver some of these aspects of care where we've not had found it difficult to find the, the usual workforce to deliver this kind of healthcare. And one of the examples might be, as uh, Scarlett was saying, kind of geriatricians working in the perioperative field. We know that there aren't enough geriatricians to do this, um, but looking at developing advanced clinical practitioners to, to deliver some of this work. So, um, so case studies, involvement from the wider group who is, would be really very much welcomed. So lots to do, but all very exciting. Mm. Um, so and, and, you know, one of the things I pick, 
pick up on your on your point there. So I said right at the beginning, language is so important, and I do think we need a paradigm shift to how we actually talk to each other and talk to our patients. So obviously, this this podcast is around changing that terminology from waiting lists into preparation lists. But but your points there. If only we could remove those artificial barriers and those terms that we use so much about primary care and secondary care and just call it care and uh, I like your aspect in terms of surgical and medical patients they are our patients they're all our patients <laughs> so let's let's try and break down some of those barriers okay so 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 we've had really quite a free free ranging discussion about uh, uh, some of the things that we can uh, possibly drive forward to 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 help the surgical backlog uh, as well as some of the background around the centre for palliative care and I, I don't think any of us on this call are naive enough to think that uh, what we've discussed is is the uh, are the only solutions and all the solutions to uh, making significant inroads into these uh, these enormous backlogs um, but I think the the sort of real uh, uh, sense I'm getting is that that these uh, um, are the, the, some of the solutions to opening the discussions, changing the language, and facilitating some of the uh, uh, the the change that needs to happen across the way that we've had our traditionally had our healthcare uh, arranged and uh, uh, devised. So I might just come to you all and. Uh, ask you to sum up what you think the key take-home messages are for 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 our listeners. Scarlett, let me come to, to you to just sum up on your key messages to take away from today's discussion. So the, the key messages are that waiting lists aren't passive. We need patients to be as, as good as they can be for their operation. There are some things they can work on themselves with their family, that's exercise, nutrition, smoking cessation, getting enough sleep, reducing alcohol. There's all a few things that make quite a difference to complications. And we've got a lot of information on our website. It's got all the evidence we've talked about, and it's got information for patients, which can also be used by other healthcare professionals and receptionists and everyone. So www.cpop.org.uk and it's forward slash patients if you want the patient facing information and that can be used by others in the healthcare team to share with patients and, and get the best possible outcomes for the patient and for the service. Thank you. Thanks, Scarlett. And Joe, do you, if I can just get you to give your sort of key messages from today's discussion. Um, so I think there's probably three kind of things that I'd like to kind of focus on. One is kind of having patients at the centre. Um, but often when we talk about that, it's again kind of sometimes a little bit kind of passive. Um, but patients at the centre taking responsibility and being accountable for their role in their healthcare, and us putting patients at the centre um, of our pathways through um, making sure that we're actively involved in shared decision making, but also all of those other components that we've just talked about throughout the perioperative journey. I think the second thing is us having um, ownership of the pathway as opposed to um, the specialty that we work in and developing clinical pathways that are best suited to perioperative care. 
And then I think the third thing is around policy. Um, and of course, we've talked about that already, but we're not going to be able to get any of this working unless we have a huge um, cultural and funding change in the way that we deliver perioperative care. So I think that work on the green paper is really critical to informing future perioperative care. Thank you, Jody. And Lawrence, if I can just come to you for your keen take home messages. I think for me, it's getting all of those messages across, actually, in a way that patients will understand. So the benefits of getting fitter means that you get better quicker. It's a very simple message. Uh, I suppose the two takeaways for me was communicating that to patients and how an active role taking ownership in a perioperative care pathway and process using a preparation list would be very important. And that collaboration of making sure the patient really is um, a strong voice with the design, with the changes that come in healthcare. Thank you. And it just uh, goes to me to say thank you to all of my co-speakers, uh, Chugdeep Desi, uh, Scarlett McNally and Lawrence Mufford. And uh, we'll wrap that up there. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Centre of Perioperative Care, CPOC.